I'm Floyd Hall. The Spelman College Museum of Fine Art is presenting a new exhibition entitled Africa Forecast, Fashioning Contemporary Life, which coincides with the commemoration of the museum's 20th anniversary. I recently spoke with visual artist Firle Baez, whose work is included in the exhibition. I'm Floyd Hall, and we are here on the campus of Spelman College for the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. And I have the pleasure of speaking with visual artist Firle Baez. Firle, how are you? I'm good. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have this time with you. Um, what do you make of, of this moment that you're in right now in terms of your growth as an artist up to this point? Um, I think... It's, I'm glad for the blessings, but it comes from a lot of hard work. So um, it's not something that just happens in immediate, like people just see the, um, the blessings of the moment rather than like the seeds you have to sow and how much you have to care for it over the years for it to be what it is now. So I'm just really blessed and happy to be in this moment. Something you wrote it says, Caribbean folklore allows for malleability in the creation of self, but I find my status as an Afro-Latina in the United States static and limiting in comparison. Delve deeper into that. That is a turduncan of a question. So um, growing up in the Dominican Republic, there are very specific and very rigid gender roles, but um, race, maybe because of the general um, cultural amnesia that Dominicans like to play with themselves, race is something that happens in the back of your mind and that you're constantly negotiating, but you're not, you're trying to make it something other. In the U.S., you're confronted by it specifically, and you are one thing or the other. And I feel like those are remnants almost of the culture's you know, that melded to make them. So, for instance, in the Caribbean Hispanophone culture, the church itself in Spain almost, and this is, some people might question it, but I think almost sanctioned rape. It was like, you assimilate forcibly. Everybody should, um, one drop puts you closer to this whiteness versus the Anglophone uh, U.S., where you have like one drop makes you black. Um, and there are basically two things saying the same thing. There are ways of stratifying on like really arbitrary factors. But in the US, you, um, you have two languages to speak and that's, that's it. Um, and for better or worse, and as, I will not curse, as weird as race is in Dominican Republic and Haiti, and throughout the Caribbean, there's just a different way of navigating identity. Um, and when I mentioned that there is a fluidity to the folklore itself, that for me stands outside and almost as a reaction to things like the Hispanophone histories that influence ideas around identity. Um, one creature in particular is Osiguapa, which is a female trickster that comes out of the landscape and it's 
um, native to the island of Hispaniola, so it's both Haitian and Dominican. And um, the only constants about her are that she has backward legs, so which makes her untraceable. So if you follow her footsteps, you're going in the wrong direction. And that she has this long, lustrous mane. But there's no standard of whether it's like just long, sexy hair or her whole body's covered in hair. Um, and she's this female creature that comes from the landscape. And that in itself, the fact that she's wild and has all this power is something that is antithetical to everything you're taught as a woman in the Dominican Republic, even the language itself in Spanish, everything is gendered. So the table, the chair, the moon, anything passive is feminine and anything active is male. So an ideal female lover is one who waits, who is passive, who sits. And that translates to the US still sometimes, but um, the moon is ideal lover. And the ciguapa is nothing like any of those things. And when I was a kid, I was always told, if you act wild, you'll be like this thing. And I was like, why not? <laughs> She's a badass. Why would I not want to have this limitless power? Um, and so I usually use that figure as a almost like a Rorschach to project all the things that could be or are within landscape and language and all the different structures. And I think one of the figures that are here um, that has like the, I guess it's in their brochure, with a flower in the face. It's almost like imagining a decoy ciguapa um, in nature between things. Yeah. So when it comes to how you reinterpret uh, this folklore and as you look at your identity, as you walk through life and as you experience things, um, how do you um, move between that that fluidity of the Caribbean folklore and the rigidity of the U.S. in terms of navigating day-to-day -day identity, how you see yourself and the places that you, that you put yourself? I mean, I, I think I was placing, maybe in the previous description, like made it sound like one thing was good and one was bad. They both are just two sides of the same coin. But one benefit of having most of my formative years in the U.S is that you are able to name things for what they are. Because there was a civil rights movement here, you're able to say, this exists. How can we work towards building around it or building through it? Um, and the Dominican Republic or Brazil, most of Latin America never had a civil rights movement. And they're looking at that as an example of how to go forward. Like acknowledge, OK, yes, we inherited this history. And we're still acting on it. We're still inheritors of all that legacy. How do we get over that, or how do we better? Um, and there was uh, one interesting podcast I heard recently where they were mentioning how humans are not able to see color until they collectively name it. Literally, you cannot say the sky is blue until someone else, like as a community, as a culture, says that sky is blue. Um, if you look at Greek, and, Rome, and like ancient literature, they didn't have certain colors. The sea was wine red. And we're the same thing here until we can say, all right, this is a true fact. We are people who have inherited this violent history on both sides. How do we go forward and rebuild ourselves? You can't really do anything. Um, but that, that ability to start naming something is part of the US legacy, which I'm really grateful for. 
In terms of research, because it seems like you do a lot of research in terms of how you... I'm just a sponge. Well, maybe, well, in, in terms of your, your sponge state, um, as history um, informs you, how do you go through that process of interpreting that history and then translating that into work, into your work? So I think a big distinction would be that I am an artist and historians would probably like slam me upside the head if they thought that anything I did was history making or uh, any part of like their um, practice. But I love being able to look at history and because you're an artist having the flexibility to make connections that would not be otherwise concretely founded or concretely like easily threaded. Um, a lot of our, the things that make us down to folklore or visual culture have not been documented because they have not been the dominant voice. So a lot of times you have to dig and, and like, and put them together. And that's why like um, Fred, is it Fred Wilson? He has like the pretty curly hair. Um, he goes into collections and is like very obviously piercing together that otherwise, because of museology, would not have been put together, but starts that conversation. And that's something that artists do all the time. Um, so, for instance, tying together something like the Sabache, which is in Brazil called the Figa. It's this fist that very much looks like the black power fist uh, that you would see on top of an Afro pig. And that has become like, you know, a symbol of like self-definition. In um, the Caribbean and in Latin America, for the most part, most newborns will have a pendant of that fist in their necks or in their wrists, and that's like the evil eye protection. And one of the threads that I've been able to like follow is that it might have started in um, during slavery in Brazil. They would geld men because it was a breeding system. So if you wanted to defy that breeding system and you wanted to be intimate with someone, you would make that gesture. It would be a gesture of defiance and a sexual code and do that. So that severed gesture, that fist, is what became the protection for all babies. Um, so you can follow that in many different yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by uh, the scale of your work, um, size-wise. Um, the work that's on display in this exhibition, very beautiful, very big, and it's very striking um, when you confront it. Talk about working in, in scale, in that size, and, I, and maybe the the intricacy of, of how you do what you and do. And those are some of the medium scale ones. So oh, usually, wow. Okay. <laughs> usually, um, I'll, I'll make these miniatures, but then the whole wall will add up to around 20 feet. Um, or I'll make things that are usually 9 or 8 feet. I want the viewer to confront the work physically, to consume it visually, and then then start processing it. Because a lot of the history might not be known. A lot of the subject matter might be unfamiliar. So I want people to be seduced by it and then be like, oh yes, this might not necessarily be something I could be happy about, but I'm in and I'm committed. So let's start doing some research or hopefully start doing some research. Um, staying on that, on that uh, trajectory as far as, as, far as your work, um, and in, in that in that scale, um, when are you at your best when you when you're working? When I am in a trance state, <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. But if I am so involved that I lose track of time, 
that's when I'm I feel like the best work comes mm-hmm. um, and as I think about your work and your studio practice, um, can you delve more into what your what your process is? So usually I like to go into the studio as a place where um, I'm just responding visually. So I'll have, like you were saying, there's all this information that's informing what might be coming, but I won't know exactly what the work is until I start unpacking it after making it. Um, I'll be like, oh yes, this here orchid is from this article that I was reading about like Felix Gautari, like the portrait that's downstairs, for instance. I had just been subconsciously sketching in my book and thinking of the Guapas and thinking of like transmutation and all the things that we're taught like as other, we're constantly taught to love something other than ourselves. Like we're taught to appreciate to play with dolls that don't always look like us, to, you know, from everything that we do, we're taught to love other. Um, And in this article, Felix Autari, the title was Of Love Possessed, and they were arguing that in order to end the world's problems, we should learn to have alteritarian love, to start, start to love other. And I was thinking that's something that the Global South has been working on for ever. <laughs> that's the, the main MO f- for centuries. Um, so you just should start talking to yourselves about that. Um, so just thinking, giving them, if I could give them lessons on alteritarian love, where would it start? And I was thinking maybe I would start at the beauty supply store. Mm. Um, and how that's not always like the thing that can solve problems. Well, I know that you've had past work. Um, I think it's the the Can I Pass mm-hmm. uh, series of well, self portraits. Yeah, that was two years long. Um, and I think I went off track. I didn't no, know but, if I answered. No, but I, let's 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 stay here because I think that as you talk about the self love and identity, um, Can I Pass or the notion of, of passing, um, how we, we relate that to our skin tones, and I guess also our hair texture. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to talk more about Social that. Social construct. Yeah. yeah. So in the Dominican Republic, there is every term for skin color, and it's usually related to food, your cinnamon or caramel or anything. And black is reserved exclusively for, like, if you come from Haiti. So it doesn't have any logic. There's no sense, because we legit, literally like can look exactly the same. But there would be things like um, the Dominican blowout, where the standard for a perfect Dominican blowout is not this pin straight hair. It's this thing that has a facsimile of flow mimicking European hair texture. Um, And that can go back to like colonial law, so that if you thought your spouse kind of tricked you into thinking they were white, it could blow on their hair. And if it didn't flow naturally, then that could be grounds to prove their blackness. Um, kind of like if you think of the South African test, the pencil test, if it didn't fall, your hair was black, and things that are just stupid. So <laughs> putting part of the self-portraits were thinking, where does my hair fit within that Dominican flow? And then the, the brown paperback test here. Like these two tests, you could be in different light, can be in different environments and 
they could, you know, I could walk out in the rain and suddenly whatever trickery could be gone. <laughs> so um, seeing where I stood within that for two years and being able to even question, po posit those two questions only came out of growing up in the States. If I were in the American Republic, that work would never exist because it'd be a question that I would be constantly reminded not to ask. Um, even my cousins, like, their kitchen would be perfectly permed. If the rest of their hair was kind of flowing, they would just always make sure that, like, every micro detail would be d redefined. Um, and that would, it's like constantly be pressured on. And it's always sad, because I hear, um, I'm in blogs or whatever, and people are like, oh, Dominicans, they're the dumbest of all our Caribbean folk. And I'm like, oh, we've inherited a certain history. Um, there are certain embargoes that they were uh, that were avoided by that kind of schizophrenia. Um, if you think of Haiti, they paid their six billion debt just recently, like you know, maybe sixty years ago, they paid that sixty billion debt to France. The Dominican Republic was paying similar debts, but uh, and along with that debt they paid to that Haiti paid to France, they also had embargoes from all the forces that be. They were literally floating the Enlightenment. In Europe, Martinique between Martinique and Haiti, they had sixty percent of France's economy. So, when you go back and forth, that wealth, that potential wealth that they had, they were never able to use because all of the European forces teamed up and were like, "Oh, sorry, you can't have that." But the Dominican Republic was able to still continue trade by saying, "No, no, no, we're white," and that schizophrenia kept growing and growing and growing until where we are now. So when you see someone saying horribly trollish comments on the internet, you're like, you, this is a legacy you've inherited. And it's a legacy that you're able to question once you grow up, when you're out of, outside of it. Um, now I want to ask you about that because when you mentioned your upbringing here in the U.S., um, when you go back to the Dominican Republic, how vocal are you about speaking and naming you know or being all the time okay. but they see me as having the mental illness at that point they're like you've been brainwashed in the u.s into thinking all these different things um so in order to have an equitable conversation you'd have to have like a really broad re-education and it's slowly happening mm -hmm. because there is a back and forth happening all the time between the u.s and the dominican republic um sometimes to not a good for good and bad like there's a lot of american commerce that's taken over the island and obliterated some of the different things but um i always make sure to name it there's even natural hair salons there now which would have been miraculous even five years ago or ten years ago mm. um but it's still a slow climb i make sure to say it all the time yeah this exhibition, Africa Forecast, Fashioning Contemporary Life, um, what does it mean for you to be in this exhibition right now, in this moment? Well, just to name a few, like, just the artists alone floor me. They're fabulous. So be, to be in their company is incredible. But also then to be within the context of the concept of the exhibition is really humbling because you're, it's work that you've been working, that I've been working on for a very long time, that I've been thinking of, um, and to see someone else recognize it and put it in, within the right context is 
really, really, it makes me happy. Because then you can start different conversations about like what the work can function as. And it's also serving who I'm making the work for, <laughs> rather than being in this cube for people who might just be introducing themselves to a history, it might just be a moment of reflection as a contrast, being here. Fearle Baez, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you for having me, thanks. It's been a pleasure.